Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to The Gabby Ree Show. On this show, we discuss the complex topics around relationships, health, fitness, family, business, and so much more with the world's leading experts. My goal is to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using in your life today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life can be challenging. So let's try managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, life is just one big experiment. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. My guest today is one of the greatest free divers in the world, William Truebridge. He's written a book called Oxygen. Maybe you caught him in the Netflix special, Deepest Breath. And I had a really interesting conversation with William because as an athlete, I think we equate so much of athletics Obviously, it's physical, but then the psychology, the mental, and dealing with stress and pressure. Well, an interesting and nuanced sport like freediving, this is all exaggerated. So you'll even hear in the interview how calm and quiet William is the entire time. And so William not only shares the the preparation and the training to do what it takes to do free diving, whichever discipline of free diving you would do, and sort of what happens to your body and what happens to your lungs and all of these amazing things. But more importantly, he talks about his own techniques, whether it's through breathing or certain meditations and what type of training he's doing to manage just himself. How's the training going? Um, not too bad. We had like a, a flow of the sargassum come in and it kind of forms a bit of, bit of a lid on top of the blue hole, which makes training sometimes difficult. Um, but I got a few good dives in. Wait, say, say this again? You know the sargassum seaweed yeah. that floats around in the open ocean? It's not actually anchored. There's been more and more of it every year because of, mainly because of nitrates, the fertilizers running off the land and that nitrogen is used um, to kind of supercharge the, the seaweed. And it's a really big problem on some of the 
uh, Caribbean islands because it washes up on the shore and then it starts to rot and release sulfuric kind of gases and stuff. So we sometimes have an issue of that in the blue hole. So how, what, how many more weeks do you have of training before your competition? I'm actually on the way to the competition now. So I, I just flew to Nassau today and then I leave for um, Europe tomorrow. Okay, great. And then um, um, before we break down sort of the different types of free diving, um, I'm just curious, will you, do you do anything do you have any hacks for your traveling to keep your system as recovered and prepared to put you in the best position for the competition? Um, not really. Probably just the same stuff that everyone else does. Like I make a bit of a cocoon for myself when I'm traveling with the, the hoodie and the headphones and then one of those, I think it's man, mantra eye covers that like is, uh, is, is better than a regular eye patch because it doesn't put pressure on your eyes. It's funny, my husband, uh, he heard from somewhere a while ago that your stomach also has a circadian rhythm. And so if you fast on the flight, and even though where your, your journey is going to be quite long, he'll even do it on the longer flights where they fast so that I think they say you have less jet lag once you get there. William, I think a lot of us have seen free diving and, um, and then certainly with uh, the deepest breath out on uh, Netflix um, you know, there's maybe a little energy around it, but I think a lot of us have no idea the different types of disciplines. Um, and, and really sort of, there are these really different lanes in, in free diving. And so maybe in a, just an easy way for you, if you could introduce us to just the different types and different categories of free diving. Sure. Yeah. So it's split into, you have pool disciplines and depth disciplines. In the pool, uh, it's either about going for maximum duration, maximum time, and that discipline <clears throat> is called static apnea. Apnea just means breath hold. So static apnea, you just lie face down in the pool, hold your breath as long as you can. Then dynamic apnea is about maximum distance horizontally in the pool on one breath. So we're swimming backwards and forwards laps of the pool under the water. And that can be done with or without fins. Then when you go into the depth disciplines, there's three main modalities, with and without fins. So obviously uh, without fins, you just have your hands and feet to swim down. Swimming is kind of like an adapted form of breaststroke underwater. Then with fins, you can choose to either use bifins, like classic uh, snorkeling fins, except they're long and made from carbon fiber, or a monofin, which is like a whale's tail or a mermaid's tail. And again, that's made from carbon fiber as well. Then there's also a third discipline, free immersion, where you can pull yourself down and up on the rope. So you can use the rope to pull yourself through the water. There are also some other kind of more archaic disciplines where you go down with a sled and come up with a lift bag. But that's, if anyone's seen the movie, The Big Blue, that's what they, they do in that movie. But it's not really contested anymore. There's no competitions in that discipline. It's more of a stunt. Do people, because do you think there's just too much assistance at that point? And so people, the true, the real uh, core kind of freediving community is like, yeah, no, that's not what our sport is. Yeah, it's not so athletic, really. You're really just kind of 
dunking a tea bag. <laughs> um, and if you can hold onto the sled and equalize the ears, then the dive, like a round trip to 100, 150 meters only takes two or three minutes of just holding on. So it's not really a, a, like an athletic performance so much as an exercise and equalization. Whereas swimming down with just your hands and feet or just uh, uh, fins to pull yourself down, it's all your body, like you're completely autonomous. And I think that purity is more where the, the, the direction the sport has taken in recent years. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Like you said, it's it's athletic and there's so many elements that go into making that happen. Just for, for fun's sake, can you share with people maybe um, some of the longest times that people have stayed in the, in the pool and the apnea. And, and, you know, I want to remind people, for example, um, someone can say, well, how long can someone hold their breath? It's like, okay, well, if you're coming off a sporting event, you have a high heart rate, being able to hold your breath at 90 seconds might be a long time. Um, so it's just getting it for people to understand sitting at the pool is very, very different than being unassisted with anything going down um, and dealing with pressure and not having fins and holding your breath for those durations. So, so I want you to share the numbers and the depths, but it's also reminding people that these are, these are wildly different universes. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So typically as soon as you start to dive and swim down, you shave at least 50% off your actual breath hold time. The longest breath holds um, static apnea just in the pool face down. The longest times have been about 10 minutes or just a little more than 10 minutes. And in terms of a deep dive, so the, the world records typically don't take longer than about four, four and a half minutes, but that's obviously four, four and a half minutes of swimming and equalizing and sustaining like pretty significant pressures on the body. You'll sometimes hear about different numbers, like you hear about 24 minutes breath holds. And in all those cases, it's holding your breath on pure oxygen, which has five times more oxygen than the air that we breathe. So, yeah, it's not really, um, it, it's not a sport so much. It's, again, more of a stunt. Uh, and I would say 10 minutes on regular air is a lot more significant than 20 or 30 minutes on pure oxygen. And also in, in films such as like an, an Avatar, the actors and actresses, you might have heard of Kate Winslet holding a breath for seven, eight minutes. Um, again, that is using oxygen assistance, not just regular air. What I think is so fascinating about your sport, well, there's a lot of things. One, it's incredibly hard on your body, uh, especially when you start going to deep depths. I mean, I don't think people understand it. For me, it's almost like when people are, are into, you know, mountain climbing, like there's certain elements that it's very hard on your system, but also how much of it, yes, it's physical, but how much the mental really is such a powerful player in this as well. Um, what it just for, you know, curiosity when you're in the pool, are you just weighted down and do you go into this meditative state? How does it work? So for the, the static apnea where you're just, you're not moving, typically we float as long as your airways are in the water, then that's, that's okay for the judges. Um, they don't need to see you completely under the water. So we'll float. When I do my own training in the pool, because it's aimed, geared at depth, most of the breath hold training I do is on exhale, on a full exhale. And in that case, I sink to the bottom and I just kind of 
hang out in the bottom of the pool in between breaths. But in the competition, yeah, you're floating on the surface and trying to kind of get into a meditative state, I guess, at the start of the breath hold, there's always like an easy phase where you don't feel an urge to breathe. And there is just about like developing your relaxation. But then once you start to get the urge to breathe, and that can come as soon as kind of a third of the way into your breath hold, then it's, it's about not kind of giving into that sensation of like panic or suffocation, maintaining your relaxation, um, and using mental techniques to kind of motivate you yourself through that phase as much as you can. What do you like? Let's say you're a few minutes into um, a, a static in the pool and you go, Oh, I'm feeling that pressure. Where do you go in your mind? I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. And, and then do you at that moment give into, Oh, I'll let a few bubbles out. Or do you, do you know how to bypass that? Like, what do you do? Yeah, it's important not to exhale when you feel that urge to breathe, the pressure. And as I said before, it could be quite early from, for myself. I'm not a specialist in static apnea. Uh, the longest I've held my breath is eight minutes, but the first urge to breathe will come at maybe two minutes, 40 or before three minutes. And so if I thought of how long I still need to hold my breath and I'm already getting that urge to breathe, it would be kind of <laughs> terribly off-putting. So in that phase, it's just about um, going into the empty spaces between the thoughts, like residing in those empty spaces. When you have like a negative thought pop in, just allowing it to come in one window and pass out the other, not concentrate on it, not like battle with it. And um, you can give your mind like a, a simple task kind of like you give a baby a, a pacifier, right? You, if you give it like a task of counting the contractions, the breathing reflexes we get when we're holding our breath or humming like a really simple kind of nursery rhyme tune in your head, that's just enough to keep it occupied so it doesn't go down the rabbit hole of negative thinking, um, but it's not so elaborate that you consume a lot of oxygen in your brain because the brain is really, really oxygen hungry. It's like a guzzles oxygen when it's when it's working yeah i think that that's one of the really interesting things about water and no oxygen is it teaches you how powerful um your your thoughts are and even you know your gaze and things like that like all of those extras burn so much air and i and i think the water being that objective environment is such a fascinating teacher where you go oh the difference was um, the intensity of my thoughts or even it was my tongue or my jaw stiff or any of that. It's so all the nuances that you guys deal with is so fascinating. I have to say there's certain sports though, that I, I sort I sort of think that, um, because it is hard on you physiologically. I always wonder like, what is driving these athletes? Because, you know, you, you can win, you know, you can win, but I sort of feel like even within the training and within the competing, um, this is hard on your body in a very unique way. What is it? Is there something common amongst all of you that um, you have to do this? Like, what do you think the driver is that calls you to this, to this kind of endeavor? 
Yeah, firstly, to talk about like the impact it has on the body first. So physiologically, it, it is such a different sport to anything else that we experience because you have this dive reflex, your heart rate slows to 20, 30 beats a minute, your spleen contracts, your lungs are smaller volume than they can ever be above the surface, all these different things, um, peripheral vasoconstriction, all your blood is pushed to the core. And so it sounds really extreme. And when you talk about the pressure, you can describe the pressure at 100 meters as being, in, in terms of pounds per square inch, it's something stupid like 100 or, or more, but it's it's uh, three or four times the pressure inside a car tire. And all of that sounds like it, it would be doing damage to your body or that there would be some kind of long-term effect. But I actually think that in the long term, the, the effects on your body are probably less than most sports. For instance, like um, tennis or soccer or running, any of those sports, if you play them for 10, 20 years, you are going to have injuries um, and need to replace hips or other things like that. In freediving, there's none of those kind of um, progressive injuries that happen. As long as you are diving within your within your limits conservatively, we haven't yet discovered kind of a long-term impact. I personally already have an artificial knee from volleyball, from jumping. You know, I, I, oh, yeah. I have, you know, from repetitive. Yeah, so I can relate to that that part of it. Mm-hmm. It just it, – it just feels like, again, looking from the outside and, and I could be projecting something of my own feelings about on it. It's sort of like um, what drives you personally, because you can't speak for the other people sort of down there. Like, mm. and you know, what is the what's the calling? Because I, I do think it is that it has to be a calling because it's a lot of work. Um, it's not like it's a huge sport in that way. So it really has to be something that you really want to do. If you think about it, freediving is the only purely aquatic sport in the sense that we are completely immersed in the liquid environment. Like we're not operating on the boundary between liquid and gas as we are for pretty much every sport. Um, And we're not taking down like a a room full of air strapped to our back in in a cylinder. So you're completely immersed in the water on its own terms. And that experience is like no other that we experience in our day-to-day lives because all of our lives were on the boundary between uh, solid and gas or liquid and gas. That's where we live. So just that is, is would be enough. Um, but it's also, freediving also provides kind of a portal or a way for you to discover what you are in your true essence because it strips everything away. And you'll know this already from going in the ocean regularly that just being in the sea takes away worries of the future or thoughts about what happened in the past. It just puts you in that present moment with a kind of clear mind. And being deep underwater somehow magnifies that because it takes away most of your senses, takes away your perception of time, which we normally perceive through the rhythm of the breath and it slows everything down, slows your heartbeat, slows your thoughts. And so you really kind of get everything stripped away. And what's left is just this sensation of being a speck of awareness, speck of consciousness drifting down into the blue. And yeah, in essence, that's at the end of the day, what we are is just 
awareness, um, absorbing or receiving all this information from our bodies, from the worlds around us. And freediving kind of shows you that in the most um, high-resolution way, I guess. So that's that's another answer. And then, again, it's also a, a mental and a physical challenge. So it's like a holistic challenge um, for the body but also for the mind. And so that's always going to be rewarding when you challenge yourself and you go beyond your perceived ideas of your limits. When you're, when you're training, I'm just curious also with your own, you're quite lean, but with your own body mass and even kind of density, fat versus muscle, did you find a sweet spot in there um, as far as being able to go down further or have store more, keep more oxygen? Was there anything that you have, have stumbled across that really... Um, was where there was this sort of interesting balance? It was more just a case of letting my body figure it out for itself, I guess. So training as, as hard as I could and allowing it to kind of uh, adapt, yeah. And I noticed that yeah, it seemed like being not too lean, but um, having not having an excess either of fat or of muscle tissue seemed to be a good balance. And focusing on, in training, developing a explosive power in the muscle tissues. So rather than like a, a bodybuilder who would be able to do kind of a set of high, um, high weight at, at low repetitions, it's more about being able to kind of create a high amount of power for a sustained, sustained period of time. So more like the kind of... If you think of the physique of Bruce Lee, for instance, like incredible explosive power, but very, very lean. And that, I think, is more efficient for moving through the water because it means that you can cut back from all the way down to like about 40% of your actual power and still have a good speed through the water. And that seems to be the most efficient way. Like, So you, you're operating kind of in second or third gear which means that you're really efficient, but yet you are still traveling through the water at a good click. Um, so that's kind of how I seem to have landed in my training. Do the, when you're, when you're going down, um, speaking of power, where are you, you know, it's this interesting thing of how you're trying to be as efficient as possible. And I'd imagine it, you know, once you have momentum, it's like keeping that steady momentum as you go down, but then dealing with the pressure. Could you, could you tell me, could you sort of share with us, like from your experience as you go down the different phases and not only what parts of your body are you working, but also how you're adapting and adjusting to the depths. Yeah. So when I start on the surface, as we talked about before, you've got a full lung full of air and you're very buoyant. Uh, in my case, I'd be kind of six or seven liters positively buoyant, which means I'm working against six, seven kilos or like 15 pounds of, of buoyancy force. So in that phase, I have to swim. I have to have like a lot of power just to get myself under the water. But already by the time just at a depth of, of 30 feet, 10 meters, the lung volume is halved. It's the same amount of air, but just compressed into half the space. 
So you lose half of that lung buoyancy, which is um, four or five liters. And so now I'm only maybe one or, or two liters positively buoyant. If you go another 10, 20 meters to 30 meters, I've lost so much lung buoyancy that I'm now negatively buoyant. So at this point, I, I've already kind of relaxed the, the, the way that I'm swimming and I can stop swimming completely and go into what we call the free fall where you just glide down into the depth. And it sounds kind of, it can sound disconcerting or, or uh, spooky, but once you get used to it, it's the most beautiful phase of the dive because you're just, you're not moving, you're just relaxed, you tuck yourself into like a nice kind of free fall position and you just allow the ocean to draw you into itself. And in that phase, it can last from 30 meters to 100 or more meters. So you can be in that phase for well over a minute. And you're really getting to a deep state of relaxation. And then when you turn at the bottom, we have to, to grab a tag to prove that we've been at that depth. And now my lung volume is about a third of what it is after a full exhale. So if I breathe all the air out that I can on the surface, so completely empty, there is actually still some air in the lungs, about in my case, maybe a liter and a half or two liters. But at 100 meters, that is compressed down to um, a third of that, so like 0.5 liters. And it means that you have to be completely flexible in your diaphragm, in your rib cage, in your rigid airways, the trachea and the bronchi, in order to accommodate that pressure change. Otherwise, what happens is the blood vessels in your lungs can burst and release blood into the airspace, and we get what we call an edema, which is where the, the lungs start to fill up with fluid. And that can be very dangerous. So... I want to get to that internal flexibility, but so you, you turn and for you, you, you only use the line as a guide, correct? And no fins. Yeah. You cannot touch the rope other than one time at the bottom in order to make the turn to get the tag. And so on, the, I'm just curious, like, is your brain when you're first trying to penetrate and get that through that buoyancy, are you sort of more activated even in your brain? Like, okay, I'm, moving down and then do you sort of switch gears even mentally as you go into that free fall and and sort of get into this more meditative space do you switch a gear in that or yeah you do so especially because in that first phase when you're overcoming the positive buoyancy you've only just started holding your breath so you've just been on the surface kind of preparing for this this dive or record attempt <clears throat> you take that last breath of air and then as you swim down, all those kind of thoughts start to slowly get left behind. So you're still kind of trying to really acclimatize and get into a, a deeper state of relaxation. But then when, when I hit the free fall phase, typically I'll do one last stroke. And then as I'm doing that last stroke, I'll give myself like a mental command, such as shut down or something similar. And just to tell the whole body just to let go of every residual contraction or tension to relax. And it's also a command for the mind as well, just to um, shut, shut the central operating system off completely. And everything is programmed into the subconscious. So it's kind of like you allow the body to work on autopilot because the subconscious is so much more efficient uh, and so much more 
reliable. And so you don't need to be like thinking about things or making decisions. If you're making decisions underwater, then you've done something wrong. I mean, through the practice I know of diving, but in your training, is there any way that you're able to do that switch over on land? Like when you are practicing to, to get better and more efficient, or is it just through the repetition of, okay, I'm at this phase. Now I'm going to switch gears. Have you figured out a way within your training to do it? Maybe in meditation or breathing exercises? Yeah. In fact, there's, there's some ways that cause I've, I've started to ad, uh, adapt these techniques, both the, the physical techniques of the breathing methods that we use in preparation, but also the mental techniques used in freediving. And I've seen that they have huge utility to the kind of stress and anxiety that we face in our day to day lives. And so in particular, for instance, with the mental techniques, using what I call observer mind, in order to disassociate yourself, to detach from the experience, the negative experience that you are having. So noticing that everything you're experiencing, including your own thoughts, including your own emotions, is still just data or information that's coming to your awareness. I talked before about this idea of being like a speck of awareness, just drifting down into the, into the abyss in a, in a free dive. And that speck of, of consciousness is the only thing that is, that is truly you. And even your own emotions, even your own kind of the effects of your hormones and thought, negative thoughts and things other people um, tell you, the senses, what they pick up, all of that is just data that is fed to this speck of consciousness. And so remembering that and noticing it and aligning yourself with that observer, the, um, the silent awareness is a way of, I see it as kind of like taking a step sideways. So you're out of the, you're not in the river, like kind of uh, floundering in the middle of this, um, this chaos. You're just cozily on the riverbank, watching everything slide by. And that's a hugely powerful technique to be able to, yeah, just detach yourself in those moments when you're experiencing something that's it's too much pressure, too much stress or anxiety, and remind yourself that you are just the receiver of all of that information, that data. Okay. You have a family. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's switch. Let's, let's play a game now. Let's use that detached perspective, okay. you know, and you have two, you know, wild kids and, you know, to, maybe your partner is going through their own thing. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you able, is that able to show up for you even in the, in the realist of life? Yes. <laughs> moments? Yeah. Great question. And um, what I talked about now is, is again, just, the half of it, so it's the mental side. There's also the physical side. And the physical, the breathing component allows you to reverse engineer the right kind of mental and physical state. You're basically turning on the parasympathetic nervous system, the um, rest and digest. And it's also the nervous system that allows your prefrontal cortex to decision-making to be much more accurate. So in those situations where you... Your, your significant other has just said something that you strongly disagree with, let's say, or your kids are running amok 
then the natural reaction for us is to become kind of activated and, and you go into that like cortisol, adrenaline and fly off the handle and you're not reasoning as well. But uh, if you are able to, if you have a mechanism such that your body responds to the situations, not with that reflex, but with the opposite one. So your automatic response is to breathe more into your diaphragm through your nose and to just mentally take that step sideways so that you're now observing this from a kind of a position of serenity. If that is your default reflex, then yes, even in those situations, um, it can work. But the, the game changer with the, the system is called the mental immune system because I see it as this, we have like an immune system for pathogens, right, for viruses, but we don't have one for the mental viruses that assail us. And so you have to upload this, this app, this immune system into your subconscious mind. And that's the game changer because if it's something you have to think about, like if you're in an argument with your spouse, then the last thing you're going to do is be like, ah, oh, yeah, hang on, I need to do this, this style of breathing or I need to think about it. It's never going to work, right? But if it's something that's subconscious that just kicks in automatically while you're focused elsewhere, then it will work each and every time. And so the mental immune system is about training yourself or, or scripting this program into your subconscious mind so that then it will come out in those key moments um, without you having to, to cause it or to call it into action. Do you think it's sort of a, I don't want to say fake it till you make it, but sort of say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have a strategy when something comes at me that makes me uncomfortable or defensive or whatever the emotion is and versus react, I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to have a soft, big, long inhale through my nose and then, you know, exhale. Um, and that if you can start practicing that, I mean, you use your sport also as an opportunity to practice that, but I think in the beginning, and maybe this is where experience comes in in life, right? Is when we recognize like, Oh, I could make a change here and do this mental immune system training, if you will, that, it's okay in the beginning if we're sort of almost forcing the practice. Cause then I, I feel like once the outcome is more positive, cause it usually is when we do that, that then it does happen more on the subconscious level. Did you, did you sort of at least, cause I think people want to do this, but, but I, I think we sort of go, well, I don't know if I could be a person who could ever get there just subconsciously kind of relax and take it easy. So you think it's it's sort of something to practice that then all of a sudden we we intuitively and instinctively know oh this is the better route to go and we just start to naturally do that yeah absolutely and what you talked about is is basically kind of creating like a feedback like a positive reinforcement right so you do it and you see that there's a good result so you get a positive uh, confirmation for that and the, the kind of the roadmap that I've created in order to, uh, program this into the subconscious involves at first, the key I feel is to take on the small challenges. Don't worry about those like huge fights or the, the kind of the um, difficult conversations at work, like tackle them later, but take on the small challenges 
And that way you're more guaranteed that it's going to work and create that positive feedback loop. And each time that happens, your subconscious takes a note and it's like, okay, yeah, well, that, that worked that time as well. And so it gets more and more deeply ingrained. And so all of those kind of small things like getting stuck in traffic or maybe having to go to a new hairdresser, so you're kind of stressed about what they're going to do, all those like little moments which aren't really kind of major things. And you can use these techniques in order to stay completely serene and relaxed and, and fine during that situation. And then you'll notice that, yeah, it does work and get that confirmation, that feedback loop. I think it's a really important point because like everything, it's a muscle. It, it's sort of like complaining. You can, you can, you can practice that muscle. Well, all of a sudden that becomes your response to things. Um, they talk about your neuroreceptors. Uh, there was a gentleman, uh, forgive me if I, I think it's like Sean Aker Archer. He used to talk about happiness and how if we could think of three things that we were grateful for, that we would start to develop those neuroreceptors would be looking for good information. Conversely, if we're always like, oh, the food was cold and the, the traffic and, you know, all this, that all of a sudden those neuroreceptors grow and they're looking for the bad information. And I think we don't realize that to your point, if we practice it in these little ways, um, that, that those muscles develop and it just, it does get easier. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same as we would train for any sport, right? Like you wouldn't um, go out and try to surf the biggest wave on your first day of surfing or like play in the most difficult game. Like you practice the, the moves and the plays in isolation. Um, the same in, in training for freediving. I'm doing short, shallow dives, working on technique, working on one specific element. And that way you build up um, like a, an overall stronger technique, which you can then use on those those kind of major occasions. So yeah, concentrating on the small challenges. And then what will happen, what I noticed is that you will find yourself in this kind of major confrontation or major like pressure situation. And at the same time as you notice that you're immersed in it, you also notice that your breathing has changed, that mentally you're kind of in a, in a state of detachment or serenity and that the system has, has kicked in even before you became aware yourself that you were in that kind of situation. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I, got, I did some research and what I love about them is so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law. And Ritual really knows how important women are. Obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important, levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work? And is it going to be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They 
they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable. Your body can absorb it. It don't know what to do. And it's really gentle on your on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Rituals multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're a certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on the nice little finished touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's Ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby to get 25% off your first month. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This podcast is brought to you by Beam. And today they have a great offer for you today on their Beam Dream Powder. And I love this because I'm always talking about sleep, the importance of sleep. I can usually fall asleep. I have a hard time staying asleep. I know I have other friends who, you know, once they go to bed, they're fine, but they can't fall asleep or people who have both. And you just don't feel great. You don't wake up feeling refreshed. A lot of us talk about, you know, poor mental cognitive function, even mental health. You've got mood issues. I'm not as productive. And you'll even hear people say, hey, when I'm not sleeping, all of a sudden I've got weight gain. So they have a really incredible offer for you today. But first, let me tell you what's inside it. So Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium L-theanine, melatonin, and nano CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and yes, let's wake up refreshed. And they're, they've had their Beam Dreams powder in hot cocoa, and it's very, very popular. It's one of their best-selling healthy hot cocos because there is no added sugar. And now they've got available so many other delicious flavors, sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, chocolate peanut butter. You can just put it in hot water 
or milk, milk alternatives, stir it, froth it, and just enjoy it before bedtime. And a recent clinical study revealed Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93 reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. If you want to try Beam's best-selling Dream Powder, you can get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash Gabby and use the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y at checkout. That's shopbeam, S-H-O-P-B-E-A-M slash Gabby and use the code Gabby for up to 40% off. This podcast is brought to you by Wakaya Perfection. I probably don't need to tell you about the benefits of ginger and turmeric for your health. I mean, their antioxidant and soothing properties are really well documented, but what we don't really know is usually where these products come from and which gingers and turmerics to put into your body. So like you, I like to do my research and I was really impressed with this company, Wakaya Perfection. And it was actually given to me first as a tea, as a gift from a really good friend of mine. And I didn't realize how special it was until I started checking out the company. I mean, they go to some of the most pristine places on earth to grow ginger, turmeric, kava, and so many more. And it's all harvested by hand. The soil, it's volcanic. They've used rainfall. It's crystal clear, and you can not only taste the difference when you use it in your food, but you can really feel it. They have a wonderful offer for you today, and if you want to check out their pristine ginger, turmeric, kava, or whatever you know your needs are, all you have to do is go to wakayaperfection.com, and when you use the code GABBY20, you'll save 20% off your first order. That's wakaya, W-A-K-A-Y-A, perfection.com. And don't forget to use the code Gabby20. This podcast is brought to you by Blissey. I first heard about Blissey, of course, from one of my daughters. They're usually ahead of me on things in beauty or just kind of things really nice for your room. And one of my girls asked me to order her this pillowcase. And I thought, okay, you really, you want a special pillowcase? Then I learned more about it. It's 100% mulberry silk. And what that means is it's temperature regulating, and that the silk is better. It's breathable and moisture wicking, very different than satin. So I don't know about you, sometimes like the back of my neck gets hot and I'm flipping my pillowcase from, you know, my pillow side to side. Well, with Blissey, all of that is over because you do have that temperature regulating. And then I found out for one of my girls why she really wanted it is that it was not only keeping you cool through the night, it reduces frizz, tangles, and hair breakage. And for me personally, what I really like is it's not precious. It's washable and hypoallergenic. It's got a great zipper, so it keeps your pillow nice and snug and in place. And they've got all kinds of great awards. From Good Housekeeping in 2021, they were given Best Bedding. Um, and they have something for everybody. No matter who you are, they've got tons of different prints and colors. They make great gifts. And there's literally an option for everyone. Men love it too. They have over 1.5 million raving fans, and you could be the next one. They have this incredible offer. So you can try now risk-free for 60 nights. I think that's enough time to figure out if you really like it. And all you have to do is go to blissy.com slash Gabby, and you'll get an additional 30% off. So that's blissy, B-L-I-S-S-Y.com slash Gabby. And don't forget to use the code Gabby to get an additional 30% off. You'll get to sleep cooler not only this summer, but all season long with Blissey.
I want to talk about your breathing practice because it is, it's, it's the key to all of this. It's the, you know, physiological preparation. Um, is it different three weeks prior to a competition? Does it, does it change? Is there, is there time changes? Is it the amount of times you do it through the day? What is, what is the, your philosophy behind your own practicing. Cause you, you did talk about, you know, all of the things interiorly being flexible mm-hmm. and able to move so that it can handle the pressure better. Um, I'm just curious, you know, how, how your, your breathing practice is. Yeah. The, I could break that down into there's the exercises that focus on lung flexibility and stretching the lungs and then there's also exercises where I'm just working on the breathing and slowing the breathing down or doing breath holds as well. And for the lung stretching, it's about, it's mostly about like generating a really strong negative intrathoracic pressure. So negative pressure or like a vacuum pressure inside the lungs. And we do this by exhaling everything completely and then using the mouth like a pump to take more air out of the lungs in addition. So it'll kind of look like. (coughs) And so when, when we do this, it it creates like a, a decompression of the lungs and you can then work on the flexibility of the ribs of the diaphragm which is what i was kind of massaging up underneath the ribs and also that negative pressure collapses to a certain extent the rigid airways so you're simulating what's going to happen during a deep deep free dive and combining that's just like a very very kind of brief version of the exercise but i'd normally combine this with movements with stretches and massage uh and contractions of the abdominal muscles, which in yoga is called naoli. It looks like a kind of a washing machine in your, in your uh, belly. And so that's, that's all the kind of stretching and flexibility side. And then on top of that, then there's the breath work where, for instance, in uh, pranayama training, I'm slowing the breathing down and taking very, very long exhales and, and inhales with a hold between them. And so the breath might be down to a frequency of like once every minute and a half. Um, Or if I'm doing it on an exhale, maybe once every minute. And so you're in that you're kind of training the body both to accommodate low oxygen and high carbon dioxide, but you're also training mentally to stay in that state for a long period of time, such as kind of 20, 30 minutes. And then there's the straight breath holds where you're holding your breath with either full lungs or empty lungs, typically in the pool and just going for maximum time. And we'll do different versions of that, like training tables where we might do 10 breath holds on empty lungs with one breath between them and going for the maximum time for the whole exercise. So there's many and there's, yeah, there's a lot more <laughs> different exercises and, and, and stuff on top of that. But that's kind of like an, an example of the different stretches and breath hold, breath work. You know how like we have good days and bad days? Mm. And 
how, what do you do? Cause I'm sure there are days that you're holding and it's just not as easy for you on other days. Mm-hmm. Do you, how do you mentally kind of, you know how, cause it's, it's funny. And especially I'm just thinking how exaggerated it must be in your sport where our bad days, they it's, you know, we can see it. We know it. You're underwater. You're already feeling it ahead thinking, Oh gosh, I'm, I feel this already. This normally would be a minute away or 30 seconds away and I'm already feeling it. Where do you go mentally to, I know you were talking about those tasks and things like that. Is it just that observation? And it's like, oh, it's okay. It's one of those days. Mm, I can help. But firstly, it's important to identify whether it's the, whether you're the reason why it's a bad day is just like, um, fluctuations or if it's overtraining uh, in particular because if you're overtraining then it would be better to actually stop and just to rest and to give your body the chance to recover Um, if it's not overtraining then the way that I would motivate myself is to remind myself that you're not I'm not holding my breath to try and break my personal best each time I'm holding my breath to send a stimulus to my body to tell it what I want it to change in order to become a better freediver, in order to be able to hold my breath longer. So if if my limit for the day is five minutes or four minutes, but I'm going close to that limit, then the stimulus that I'm sending in order to make that change is the same. And that's the, the goal of the training session at the end of the day. Well, that's managing ego, right? Like, I think that's a really important point that you're saying because we talk about that even when we lift weights. I'm like, your body doesn't know what weight number you have. It just knows work. It's working. I, I really appreciate that differentiation of like, hey, I'm accomplishing the goal. It's, you know, mm. you know it's, it's not from the ego on time, but it's like, what is my objective? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really important delineation. How do you... I'm just curious, um, dealing with the stress, like high performance situations, it's like game on the other divers are diving well and deep and you're got to sit there with the psychology of, okay, I need to just worry about myself and do the best I can do. How do you manage your, your emotional state right before you're going to go down into these really challenging dives? Yeah, that's one of the most delicate periods of the of the dive is the preparation, the minutes leading up to that last breath. Because there, if you allow yourself to get into kind of like a a rabbit hole of thinking about what's coming up or what will happen if you're not successful or even if you are successful, then that's going to trigger the sympathetic activation. Your heart rate's going to get up. You're going to be starting the dive already with a deficit of of oxygen. Uh, one of the th- important things that I, most important things I teach in courses is that you cannot ventilate yourself to have high oxygen. There's no style of breathing, even hyperventilation. So even if you're breathing 100 times a minute, it will not change the amount of oxygen saturation in your arterial blood, the blood that's flowing away from the, the lungs. Uh, all it does is it reduces your carbon dioxide, so it makes it feel like it's easier to hold your breath, but it's less safe, and you actually um, use your oxygen quicker. 
But the only way that you can increase your oxygen store before a breath hold is by being more relaxed. Because the more relaxed you are, the less work your body has done, and so the less de um, deficit or debt there is in your venous blood, the blood that's flowing away from your, your body tissue. That's why if you ran down the beach and jumped into the, into the sea and held your breath, um, you would have high CO2 as well, but you would have this oxygen debt from that work, which would be contained in the, in the venous blood. So the preparation is all about trying to be as relaxed as possible in order to maximize venous oxygen saturation. When you wear like a, a pulse oximeter, the one that they put on your finger in a hospital, that measures your, it's supposed to measure the oxygen in your blood, that's always measuring the arterial oxygen saturation. So that should be around 98, 99%. And you can't, you can't go higher than 99. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's 100%. You cannot exceed that, just like I can't put more than 100% of water in this, in this bottle. Uh -huh. So, so there's no way of breathing more air into your, into your body, but there is a way of relaxing more air into the body. And so that's why I always teach in freedom courses, the most important thing in preparation is to be relaxed. Don't worry about the breathing. That could just be diaphragmatic, slow, passive, doesn't need to be deep. Um, in fact, it's better if it's, if it's not too deep or not too quick. Um, but just focus on your relaxation and that way you will start with more oxygen. So maybe you could just take, take me through a dive, like you're going to compete. Um, hopefully you've slept well. Do you, do you toss and turn the night before thinking about it or are you pretty relaxed at this point in your, in your quest? I'm normally not too bad, but I'll try and get to bed really early um, before a record attempt. Like I'll try and be in bed by kind of nine or 10 o'clock at the latest so that even if I do toss and turn for an hour or so, it's not going to cut into my sleep too much. And then do you, do you guys usually have, is competition usually early? Are you considering wind? Like, is it all of these? Or are you in such controlled environments that um, it's set times usually? We normally know the night before when we're going to be diving. Uh, and typically it's kind of, it's morning between kind of nine to noon. Is there a smoothie or a scrambled egg or what, what, what goes in? Oats normally. Um, so just uh, boiled oats, maybe with some dried fruit and honey. Uh, so carbohydrates are really important for, for free diving. You want to have, glycogen in the muscles and um, sugars available in the blood. And so carb loading the night before and also for me, the morning of the dive is, is very important. You sound, it sounds like the eighties, William, like that's when I was in high school, they were like carbo the night we were all like with spaghetti the night before, you know, that's what we, mm. <laughs> we got it wrong. It was different from what you're doing. So, so carbo loading, probably no caffeine, I would imagine. No, caffeine, unfortunately, is like the um, anathema of, of freediving and alcohol as well, <laughs> all the fun stuff. Is it And is it alcohol? Like would somebody sort of say, hey, a month prior to, I'm just not going to drink any alcohol or, or that's just drastic? 
Well, it probably wouldn't make much of a difference um, a month before. But if you wanted to pull out all the stops, then yeah. when I'm when I'm in a training phase, yeah, I'm not drinking. Um, and at the end of the season, after like the last event, that's when I might cut the bit. Yeah, because it does seem like, and especially after after watching the film, it does also feel like there's a fun element and a travel and sort of a freedom part of the culture on a lot of the people who do this sport. It is. We're a little bit of a, a, a tribe, I guess. Um, we, it's, it's growing really quickly, but it's still often uh, a lot of the same core group who come to the main competitions. And so, yeah, it's a good, good atmosphere like that. Uh, but, um, and we're often kind of on small islands, like way, from the, the main centers as well so you have to be able to kind of um, get on with the people that you're training because often they'll also be your safety divers or they'll be um, helping you during training so it's that's important so it's the morning of a dive you you go out to sort of this platform or boat and maybe you could just walk us through because it's it's you know it's for me, it's like when I watch a track athlete bend forward before a gun goes off, it's like those really specific moments I find so, so fascinating. So you're probably in a pretty meditative downregulated state. You, you get in the water. What, what, what happens before they say, okay, or do you go on your own time volition or do they say, okay, you have 60 more seconds and then you're going to go. Yeah, you have what we call an official top time. So it might be, say, uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. That's when you um, have to do the dive. And there's a window of is it 30 seconds. Um, so uh, you'll be given a countdown up to 11 o'clock. Uh, so at 10.55, they'll say five minutes, four minutes, three, two, one. And then you'll, you'll also get 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 10 seconds, Five, four, three, two, one, zero, go. And then at the zero, you still have 30 seconds to start your dive. So you can start any time from zero to plus 30, but you must start in that window. So we kind of, I'll be lying on my back next to the, the guide rope and just relaxing, breathing passively. And I kind of time it so that I'm starting to take my last breath just before zero because it does take a little while. It takes me maybe 20, 25 seconds to fully take a breath and do what we call packing, where you are pushing more air into the lungs. So using the mouth again like a pump to push more air into the lungs. And so you want to time that so that you finish taking that last breath well before the 30-second the window is over. That last breath, do you know, you go, oh, that's the last breath before you start? Is it, do you, is it, a, you're so intimate with that kind of I'm topped off feeling that once you get the breath, you're like, now I'm ready? Yeah, there's like a sequence that I would do leading up to that breath. So when I feel ready, when it's time, when the countdown is nearing its end, then I will start that sequence and it results in taking this final full inhale and then packing the air in, and then I'm ready to go. And in that time, the mind is, is <laughs> there's this voice in the mind that, um, you know, those negative voices that always kind of choose the most inopportune moments. Um, and so 
I might get the, the thought like this is the last breath you're going to take or, um, you know, you're going to die down there. Or the, 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 those are the kind of thoughts that will enter your mind in that empty space as you're taking the last breath. And so being able to not react to those or try and combat with those thoughts, but just let them slide through without, um, yeah, without kind of taking them face on is a really important part of that process too. And I think you know this, but people have a thing about the ocean and going down into the ocean and there's large animals and large things. I know when you're doing a, a competitive dive, you're just there. You, It's you in the line pretty much. And I would imagine besides getting your tag, coming up properly is, I would imagine, kind of the only thing on your mind. But you've spent a lot of time in the water and I, I'm sure people are curious if you've ever had interesting um, critters, animals um, that you that you were sort of uh, memorable for you. Yeah, I've had, I mean, I could fill a whole day. You're talking about all the kind of underwater encounters and experiences, um, especially with some of the aquatic mammals like whales in particular and dolphins. Uh, some just mind-blowing experiences there. But it could also even be with just like a little seahorse that's floating around in the middle of like a vast expanse of open ocean. There's just this tiny little thing that's just chilling, uh, bobbing away. But in terms of during an actual deep dive itself, yeah, um, because I don't wear a mask, I can't see clearly underwater, there could be any number of things around me and I probably wouldn't know. In fact, in my very first world records, I did actually wear a mask. And I remember on that, on my first successful world record attempt, on my way down, it was in the blue hole. And we have a school of tarpon that live in the, in the blue hole underneath the, the kind of the eaves, the, the balconies of the blue hole. And there's also often at least one or two barracudas, um, big kind of five, six foot barracudas. And I've never seen it before or since, but on the descent of that world record attempt, I saw this kind of flashing of silver in front of my face and it was a tarpon chasing a barracuda at light speed around the, the blue hole. And it was like, whoa, what, what was that? What just happened? Hang on, I've still got this record attempt. Okay, get back in the zone. Um, so that was an interesting experience, but no. I mean, we've, we've seen videos from like the bottom camera footage after record attempts where there's been like a lionfish or something that's been hanging around the bottom plate that's attracted to the light. But I don't notice it while I'm down there because I'm just kind of focused inwardly and not really able to, to see clearly either. I, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm also really fascinated. So you grab your, your tag. There's a real specific protocol to coming up and doing this correctly. What What's that process like? Are you referring to the surface protocol, like once you get to the surface? Once you're coming up, yeah. Yeah. So once you arrive on the surface, in order for the dive to be official, to get a white card from the judges, you have to do what we call the surface protocol which is kind of like a proof of your lucidity. It's like a, a test 
to make sure that you haven't gone too far into hypoxia to low oxygen. So you have to, when you surface, remove any facial equipment, like nose clip or goggles, make an okay sign and say, I am okay, all within 15 seconds, which doesn't sound like much, but when you, you've just dived uh, for four minutes or more, then, and you're trying to like recover at the same time, it, it still does, um, does constitute a little bit of a challenge. And especially if you're close to the limit, uh, if you're having what we call a samba, which is where you, you've gone too far into hypoxia and it's like a, a loss of motor control that causes your body to shake. Like, you know, you're trying to breathe, but your body is like, is, is shaking at the same time. That makes it more difficult to do this service protocol. Is there like an age limit on this? Can you, can you age out of this sport or is it pretty much? Because you're getting more experience, you're getting more information about yourself, more input, you're improving. Um, is there is there sort of a aging out of this sport, or not from the sense of like when you you can no longer do it at all? Uh, we have people in their sixties and seventies who are still free diving and still going to significant depths and holding their breath for a long time. So there doesn't seem to be a limiting factor like that. Obviously, in terms of performance, that's going to start to decline at a certain point. But even there, it's probably one of the sports where you would reach your your peak later in life compared to other sports, differently compared to, say, swimming on the surface. Uh, so we have athletes, like typically, I think, all the records at the moment are held by athletes in their 30s or 40s and plenty of, of, of divers in their 40s who are still kind of challenging for the top spot. I know this is a very personal quest, this sport, but do you, and you're, you, you seem incredibly zen, calm, but do you ever, do you ever get competitive? Are you like, oh, I'm going to beat that guy or like, do you ever feel that way? And it's, it's something that I'm always having to work on because I think by nature, that's, um, that's, that's a weak spot for me. Like as a kid, I was all intensely competitive in chess and, and sport and everything. And when I found freediving, it was kind of a conscious decision that I didn't want to bring that side in too much. Like I wanted to make it more about like a, just a, a journey of discovery, of discovery of what I'm capable of or what the human body is capable of rather than trying to, to beat the person next to me. And there have been moments where, yeah, that's I haven't been able to do that as, as well and I've kind of descended more into the competitive side and, and I've seen that that does impact, negatively impact my training, my performance. So for this sport at least, um, if you're motivated by ego and and winning and, and beating someone else then it seems to be um a disadvantage of anything which is kind of cool for for a sport i think it makes it more about the personal uh journey yeah the water is such the best equalizer isn't it no matter what um my husband always talks about whatever energy he has that he brings in the water the water's like oh we're doing that today okay you know like <laughs> you give me this i give you that back kind of thing and absolutely I, I, I really appreciated that. Um, I, do you do you have a book or or something that you, if someone wanted to learn more 
about either the history of free diving or just even a story of somebody or around free diving that you think is a great representation of your sport? Is there one? Um, the only book I've written myself is, is called Oxygen. Um, that's like an autobiography, but it also talks about the sport and what we experience during free diving. Then there are some good books. I'd recommend, uh, One Breath by Adam Skolnick, um, who also wrote, uh, David Goblin's biography. And that goes more into, um, a particular freediver who tragically lost his life, um, a number of years ago. But it also talks about my rivalry with Lexay and the kind of the state of the sport, um, at that point. Then, there's other kind of more manuals, like the uh, manual of freediving is probably the best text for a beginner who's interested in getting into the sport. And yeah, I'd say the best thing to do for someone who's interested is to find a local club or to find a local course and just enroll in something like a, a, a one day course or an introduction into freediving because you can almost guarantee that you will blow your own mind as to what you're able to do underwater. It is so much easier than you th you would think. And what you're capable of is probably a lot more than you'd think. And also it's a lot more enjoyable, a lot more relaxing and rewarding than most people would imagine. William, you, you've accomplished a lot in your sport and records and you've dedicated years of your life. And, you know, I'm, I'm just curious what still motivates you? And, and it, it's like this blend. And I've seen a lot of athletes where it's pursuit, you know, of, of, uh, of a passion and maybe a tiny bit of an obsession, but I, I'm just curious, not only how you're blending it, but what just still drives you. Yeah. For me, it's always been what I talked about before that, um, the challenge, the physical and the mental challenge. And, uh, seeing where my own limits are, what I'm capable of, um, but also the experiential side to it, the um, ex the experience of being under the water, being completely immersed in liquid and what that reveals, what that reveals about human nature and um, our own consciousness. And so that whole side is, is so rewarding that any time I go into the into the sea, whether I'm diving to 100 meters or just 10 meters, um, I never regret regret a session afterwards. It's it's always I've learned something, um, had incredible experience. So yeah, there's there's so many different layers to what brings me back to the sport and what kind of nourishes me uh, from it that I don't think I'd ever. Even if I retire and and stop competing, I would still continue. Freediving, there's no way that I would give up that activity. Do your kids, if your kids came to you and said, hey, I want to pursue this, would you be comfortable with that? Absolutely. Um, I would obviously um, be, be careful with them and make sure that they, um, they learnt the, the safety uh, side of it first. Uh, but um, I do see it as, as something that can be practiced by kids as well if it's done in the right way. And again, like trying to make sure that they don't go down the competitive side of it so that they're not always like trying to like 
hold their breath for longer than they did last time, but more about just experimenting and seeing what it's like and diving into the sensations of it. Uh, so for sure, that would be fun. Is the land harder for you being on the land than being down 20 or 30 meters? Yeah, in some ways, I guess it is. Um, as a kid, as I talked about before, we were living on the boat, which is an amazing childhood, but it meant that we're, we were to a certain extent isolated and didn't have kind of that normal kind of social experience as much as kids. Um, I would, would definitely not exchange it, um, but it just means that in some situations, like in big cities with all the um, the, the chaos and the um, density of interactions that might be too much for me to sustain for long term. Um, so, but I mean, I, I still enjoy like everything about the the natural environment above the surface and hiking in the Himalayas or um, you know in the the um, the bush in New Zealand. Those kind of wild places inspire me almost as much as the as the ocean so yeah i i guess the ocean is always going to be my kind of first love or my main home i guess yeah well william um thank you so much for your time and for sharing uh just what it's like because most of us very few of us will ever get to do what you've done can you direct people where they can where they can find you or if they, you know, want to learn more or follow you more and also good luck coming up. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So uh, williamtrubridge.com is my website. I talked about the mental immune system and that's just mentalimmunesystem.com. And then on Instagram and Facebook, it's just Will Trubridge or William Trubridge, I think. Um, yeah. And but, we'll, we'll, yeah, put it in, we'll, we'll put it in the notes. I would, I, I quickly, before I forget, is there anything, any, I know you mentioned the carbohydrates, are there supplementations or anything that you do that also support, um, free diving? Yeah. So over the years, I've tried to kind of hone it in to a diet and a regime of supplementation that's as easy and natural as possible. Um, and it's, it's basically turned out that it's mostly about uh, after training. So before training is carb loading. After training, it, the training itself puts a huge toll on the body, and it's really important to cram in antioxidants and like um, nutrient dense foods after training. So I normally have like a, a like a mega smoothie, like over a liter. I don't know what that is in ounces, maybe forty ounces. Um, does that sound right? And it's got like all sorts of different frozen fruit, um, but also um, like a slab of aloe vera gel uh, from the garden, coconut, and then the powders that I use are spirulina, which is like a, a natural kind of multivitamin, but it's it's a it's a single uh, cell algae, and um, cacao, maca, beetroot juice powder, which is really important for building blood. And what else? Um, normally a vegetable source of uh, protein powder. 
and a few others that don't come to mind, but everything in this, this one smoothie. And that if I don't, if I just went to a regular meal, I would need to probably take a nap after training in the afternoon and that would be it for the day. But if I have this kind of a, um, a meal straight after training, then I can work in the afternoon and maybe train again in the evening. It's incredible how much it does to replenish the body. And so that's probably the most important kind of part of, of diet for me. And a few supplements like creatine or, or BCAAs, um, and a specific type of iron and B12 uh, that I need to take in order to make sure that I have everything for building blood. Um, but other than that, I try and kind of limit the the extra supplements. So, William, I you know I'm sure I forgot something, but if there was anything that felt uh, important to know about you or to know about free diving that I, I missed that feels important to you. I, I just want to create that one last opportunity. All right. Thank you. Um, no, I think we've covered, covered everything pretty well. The, the main thing to reiterate would be that if anyone is interested in trying these techniques or holding the breath or free diving to never ever try and do it alone, even if it's just in your own pool like um or bathtub if you are in the water holding your breath by yourself then that's the most dangerous thing you can do and in fact also if you're holding your breath dry if you hold your breath dry with nothing covering your face it's completely safe because the worst case scenario even if you black out you just start breathing again naturally and you'll wake up but if you have a nose clip on or like a mask on your face then it becomes a little bit more dangerous. So breath holds dry with no equipment, 100% fine. But the moment you step into water, make sure that you have done a free diving course or trained the, the safety side of it uh, to a certain extent, and that you have someone there who is similarly trained who can watch you and execute the safety protocols. Great. William Truebridge, thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah. we'll be looking for you. Thank you. Cheers. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. All you have to do is go to gabriellereese.com or head to the episode show notes to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, podcasts, and so much more. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out and send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. And if you feel inspired, please subscribe. I'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Laird Superfood. In 2015, Laird Superfood was created, but it was really actually created in my kitchen by my husband, Laird. And he was always experimenting with coffees and other ingredients for performance. And lo and behold, Laird Superfood was born. And we have beautiful coffees and creamers and protein bars and other things. But one of the things I'm very excited about is our new greens product. A lot of Americans are not getting enough fruits and vegetables. Something like 85% are not getting enough vegetables and 80% are not getting enough fruit. And we need fiber. So for me personally, I'm always trying to encourage people, and I know this is Laird's philosophy as well, is real food, right? Let's try to get as much of the good stuff, the minerals, the nutrients, the macro, the micronutrients from real food. But it's hard to do. Our soil's different. People are busy. 
Maybe you don't know what you're getting at your grocery store. So this is a way to get it done and bridge some of those nutritional gaps. And what I also really appreciate about it, besides that it tastes good, I just do it in water first thing in the morning, then I'm done. And then I actually go and have my coffee after. But we use upcycled fruits and veggies, so things that won't go to waste. Maybe they're not really pretty, so we use them in our fruits and veggies. We use no fillers. So your body actually knows what to do with the ingredients. They know how to absorb it. There's fiber. And also, we never use any artificial or natural flavors. Uh, this is something that is harder than people realize because to amplify flavors, a lot of times even you know using natural flavors is the way to do it. So I'm excited to share with you. And if you'd like to try it out, all you have to do is go to layeredsuperfood.com. And if you punch in the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y, 20, you will receive 20% off. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.